Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request Summer Series. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, in interviewing people, I found a lot of people that kind of run their own business. Uh, you know, you think of people like Leslie Bailey, who was on here, Lauren Carroll, Leah Carroll, uh, Elizabeth Clayton, so many people that I've had on here that run their own business. And I was wondering, like, what is that process? How do you get to that point? You know, you hear these stories of, oh, I was slumming and living on the streets and eating pizza out of the garbage can. And now I own New York. And you're like, wait, what? That's, that's crazy. What, how'd you do that? Um, and you don't really hear that in between, right? You hear A and Z, but you don't get the rest of the story. And that's where I wanted to dive in with people and find out, you know, like when did they realize that they had a marketable skill or talent? And what did that transition look like? You know, like what were your support systems between, uh, leaving your day job and, and starting this business and, you know, actually making a paycheck. And then what kind of advice do they have? So this is great. I've learned so much and I'm, I'm very excited to pass this on to you guys. And these people are phenomenal. You're going to hear some familiar voices throughout the summer, uh, that you might recognize from some other episodes, but you're also going to hear some really new, unique, amazing voices and, and, and the things that they're doing. So I'm so excited to bring this to you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. My name is Christina Dennis, and I am a recovery coach. I walk people through traumatic situations to reframe their history and give them some freedom. So you're kind of a special circumstance because, like I mentioned, I, I'm doing a kind of entrepreneur, own your own business kind of series for the summer. But um, your business kind of ties into your life, right? Like the, right. the roots of it. So I, I want to dive a little deeper than just like some of the surface business stuff, which I think you're fine with. Um, yes. <laughs> There's no real so. distinction. There wasn't even when I was in the corporate world, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was no distinction between program and helping people and, yeah. you know, they would call me director of counseling or, you know, yeah. <laughs> that just was, that ended up being my uh, lead, leadership style, you know, yeah. helping others. So uh, I'm guessing in your job, like I just mentioned, that came from a background of mm -hmm. whatever that background looks like, right? So before you get to today... If we can rewind, <laughs> go back to, um, I mean, when, when does, when do things start going in a direction that end up having an impact on you later? Like, do you have siblings? What are your parents doing when you're growing up? Sure. sure. Well, I, I was born in kind of extreme circumstances. I was born overseas on the island of Malta. Oh. And, uh, it was the day before Gaddafi went into power. And that's important because my family home was in Tripoli, Libya. And so I lived overseas for many, many years. I had one sister and one brother that I lived with. Uh, and I had one older brother and older sister that did not live with us. They were uh -huh. in the United States. Family my of five were, kids, huh? <laughs> yeah, my parents were in the oil business. So we went everywhere, all over the world. And uh, there was uh, extreme abuse. And there was a lot of abuse that was focused on me, interestingly enough. There was this real understanding that I was unwanted. You know, not only was it implied, it was said many, many yeah. times. And there was this belief. Where were you at in the sibling order? Sorry. I would have been second to the youngest. Okay. Okay. Yes. So I have a little sister a year um, younger than me. Gotcha. And it's kind of interesting, the timing, because 
you know, I fast forward to, you know, we moved to the United States and I lived in Alaska, which is a very kind of isolated place. It might as well be overseas. (laughs) And, uh, you know, my father was in the oil business, so he would go to a place called Prudhoe Bay every other week and he would be gone. And during that week, my mother's uh, mental illness would take over and there would be a lot of systematic mental abuse. In addition to that, there was covert and overt sexual abuse. And it was just a very unhappy home. And as many people do, I had survived it. At 13, my my family and I were taking a vacation to the United States. We were taking a motorhome and crossing the United States and we were going to see family. It was about a three-week planned vacation. And my father ended up dying on that vacation. He had a heart attack and fell over quite dramatically onto myself. And at 14, I was finding myself screaming, put the emergency brake on, let's go, Um, going to some house and saying, call the ambulance. My father's had a heart attack and he passed. And uh, that was really traumatic. (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm wondering the levels of of what you're processing as a 13-year-old, right? So you have the... I imagine there's obviously the grief, like your father just, yeah. just died, right? Right. But then there's this, was he but one of the abusers? Yes. So then so you also very... lose that, right? Yeah. So what is yeah. that battle like inside well, your it own? Was so, it was so obvious that I was treated differently that my, the middle brother came to me at my, my dad's funeral and said, I know he never showed it, but he really did love you. And this was somebody who was nine years older than me. He was an early young man who knew enough to say that to me. So uh, I knew enough that it wasn't in my head because enough adults would make mention of the fact that I was uh, singled out by these two people. It was odd and it was confusing. And of course, like every child, I took it on as my responsibility and my fault. And uh, my mother at that time kind of went off the deep edge because he kind of kept her sane. You know, every other week it was like this terrible cycle of abuse. And when he was gone... She really, really went into her depths of mental illness. And so uh, my younger sister and I lived in a home where one day we would be kicked out, or I should say I would be kicked out for just coming downstairs in the wrong manner. As I never knew what I could do to make it right. I, it was manipulation. It was sickness. It was very, very sad. But I had a way of managing it. And I feel kind of grateful that they treated me so poorly because I didn't stay trying to get my value from them. You know, I, I went outside of them because there wasn't anything there. So as strange as it sounds, it was actually a gift. They're singled out abuse. Yeah. But by the time I was 16, it was happening way too many times. And, uh, the older brother that I talked about earlier, I, um, he had to come pick me up because one of my mother's abuse is, was to leave me places. Like we'd go to a shopping mall and she would take my sister and leave. And I would be looking for them for hours. It was bizarre, you know, really bizarre, twisted stuff. And finally, I asked him, I said, I don't understand why she's so mean to me. Like, what did I ever do? You know, I was really, really sad and scared and angry. Oh, I was so angry. And he said, she's not your mom. She's your grandmother. Oh, my God. Yeah. So my older sister, who was in the picture, but very remotely, was actually my birth mother. Oh, my gosh. I know. All my brothers and sisters turned out to be aunts and uncles, including my younger sister. So was your father still your father? 
How did no. all how did all that? No, there work? was okay. there was incense in, there was incest in my family, but not in the particular immediate family. No, they were both my grandparents. So okay. yes, you're bringing up a good point because it was really troubling to figure out how I buried somebody who I thought was my father, and to realize that wasn't the truth. It was yeah. really odd, and very comforting because it explained why there was such a. Uh, why I was so particularly singled out, you know, it was the big family secret. Uh, It had been the big betrayal on my mother who was 21 when she was pregnant with me. It had been her big betrayal, you know, to the parents. And it was, there were so many stories. I'll never really know the truth about why they chose to lie to me, but uh, they did. And uh, so all those years I was thinking it was my fault and it actually kind of was, you know, even though I didn't do anything yeah. wrong, it was kind of, I was the source but of that, the wow. And how you were 16 when you found that out? Yes. Yes. Did I you, was 16. Did you immediately try to seek out your mother and then well, find I knew out my who your father? Well, I know, but was yeah. she around a lot? As your sister? No, 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 she wasn't. She was, she lived in Texas. I lived in Denver and I did contact her that night. I was, you know, I was pretty confrontational at that point, pretty pissed. <laughs> yeah. And so I called her and I said, I know the truth. You know, I know that you are my mother and not my sister. And I want to know who my father is. And she couldn't remember his name, supposedly. <laughs> Which, now looking back in a fully formed brain, I realize that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> if you get pregnant and it changes your entire life, you're going to remember the yeah. name of the dude. <laughs> um, but she did tell me. And uh, I was able to see at that time some letters that he had written to my grandparents because my uncle told me he wanted to be part of your life. So, you know, they wow. are the ones who kept you away from him in, you know, Africa. So and then, it was pre-internet, right? Yeah. So it wasn't like you could find out. And you find out that you had this father all along that was active, actively trying to be a part of your life. I think for a little bit, he ends up, he ended up being an alcoholic and died a few years ago. So to the point that he could, you know, there was love in his heart. Yeah. Uh, But I don't think either parent, you know, someone just taught me a phrase that I love. It's called invitation to exist. And if you have at least one parent who wanted you, then you have that, that psychic kind of emotional invitation to exist. If you have neither parent, then, um, then you tend to spend a lot of your life trying to be valuable to people. And that definitely was the beginning of my codependency and, you know, coping skills where to be as good as I could be to as many people. Can I, um, because I'm going to consider you a professional in this field, can I pull off on, on a side road here? So sure. the word codependency, um, uh-huh. I, I lump it into a group of words such as like irony and, and other words that people don't fully understand the definition of. Right. Right. Um, and every time I, I latch onto the definition, uh, like I, this comes up in therapy for me too. And I'm like, oh yeah. And I, and like, I'll go a day or two where I'm like, I can identify it. Here it is here. And here then it, it gets here. muddy. Yeah. And then it's like, wait, what? And then, uh, just like on clubhouse. So if I go in those rooms, I'm uh-huh. like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be in here. I can't, if I can't define it right now. So I don't know if I should be in this room right now. So can you, Well, there's some big clues. If there's alcoholism involved, then yes, there's going to be maladaptive behaviors in relationships, but a codependent relationship is, uh, where two people have unhealthy boundaries with each other. Yeah. You know, absolutely. It's kind of as simple as that, you know, where one begins and the other starts, they don't know. They have no boundaries between expectations and what each person is supposed to provide for the other. 
And generally, it could be two codependents, which I think is more accurate, especially as an alcoholic relationship, but it also could be a codependent and a narcissist. And what you end up finding is the codependent is trying to be as controlling as the narcissist is. They're just doing it through their actions. And so I absolutely try to control the world by being good or valuable, you you know, or a sex object. You keep describing my family dynamic. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So so, many of us. uh, Using kind of what you just said at a segue, like what were your coping mechanisms? What happens after 16? Like when do you end up leaving and and what does that look like? I, I didn't get to stay very much longer after that. My grandmother's, um, she was so confusing, you know, and I still called her mom and she was so erratic and in her own mental torture. It was quite sad, you know, and out of everyone, you know, she's since has passed. I can say she was the one who tried to love me as best she could. Yeah. You know, she really could. She just didn't have the skills. Um, what I ended up doing was having these really entangled relationships with people. Um, it's kind of where I started getting my value as being an attractive sex object, you know, as uh, currency with sexuality and yeah. how I could be your fantasy, uh, strong, you know, taking on so much responsibility for people, fighting their battles for them, uh, you know, just being bulletproof. It was this persona that I put on. And, you know, I moved out at the age of 17 and I've never lived at home since then. And, uh, you know, I graduated a year early. There was no higher education, although I'm pursuing it now. Um, and what I did was very typical of a codependent person. I had a man who was 24 years older than me. I was 18 and he, liked the way I looked and wanted me in his restaurant and gave me a job based on my looks. And he had the nicest restaurant in town, which of course I didn't know what that was at 18, you know, I was eating at McDonald's and I had no idea that he was grooming me. I kind of had a suspicion inside, but that was, he was better than my grandfather. You know, it was better than what I had had. And because my problems were so excessive, Um, or the things I've been through, I didn't necessarily relate to kids my age. So it felt kind of normal to be thrusted into this adult world. And what I learned through this man hiring me as a Coke girl was that I had a a really good skill set to handle chaos. You know, I could handle chaos and different personalities and I could be chameleon. And also my brain was built to be watching out for you know, the next disaster to uh, always be anticipating yeah. fight and people flight mode constantly. I imagine exactly. Yeah. Always watching, always yeah, yeah. watch. I've had a brain scan of my brain and the doctor asked me once, like, are, are you happy? Because you have four alpha peaks <laughs> and you know, how do you know? I don't know if I'm, I looked at him saying compared to what I didn't understand the question, yeah. but what that did was give me a career. And I ended, ended up marrying that man, um, which was, I would. I, I don't think any of my relationships have been mistakes, but it was definitely painful. And he was a sex and love addict. I'm quite sure of it. I was his fourth wife. He was narcissistic to a point. Like he was the best, the most famous restaurateur. I live. Uh, I lived a lifestyle where, like Perry Mason, Raymond Burr was a friend. You know, it was really interesting. Um, and I dealt with his narcissism, and he wanted more from me than I could give. And being in the uh, restaurant business prior to being 21, because of course I was a scandal, right? So everybody knew I was underage. I didn't yeah. drink until I was 21. Oh, wow. Once I, 
Yeah. So, so once you, I you didn't even it, use that as a coping mechanism earlier in life. I, yeah, it was absolutely all just me white knuckling and holding on and yeah. believing that it was up to me. You know, it was really me being higher power. And uh, when I found the drink, I probably breathed for the first time ever. Yeah. You know, I could still remember the how I felt after I discovered a Cadillac Margarita at the Coronado Island because we were on vacation. And thinking, where has this been my yeah. whole life? Well, I imagine you, you've been, you you weren't able to give up control of anything for Mm-mm. so long that, that that moment where your inhibitions are gone and that you don't feel the need to like white knuckle it, as you said it. Yeah. I imagine, yeah, that was probably, uh, even, oh. you know, it's alcohol, but it was probably like one of the best moments ever. So beautiful. The next day, at the same time, I started salivating for the margarita, like it was, there was no line, you, you know, they talk about the lines. Yeah. It was, there was no line. I had it from the beginning. The phenomenon of craving was huge. Yeah. And so that kind of spoke to the next six years of my life. It was about dealing with incredibly stressful moments, stepchildren, uh, failing businesses, successful businesses. You know, I got my real estate license at the age of 19. I was always working two jobs. I would run the restaurant at night and I would sell houses during the day. And this was the pace, an overfunctioner. This is how I provided value. I was going to be the best at what I did, manage the stress, be a stepmom at the age of 20, and you know, take my stepchildren to concerts because I'm the cool, pretty stepmom, and then you know, be your fantasy girl at night. And yeah. it was killing me. And uh, absolutely, alcohol gave me the courage to leave that man. Um, he ended up having a failure in his business and he went to a place where he could not provide me. Like he had to blame me. He was angry and, you know, a broken child, of course, because that's who we attract, you know, like water attracts like water. And so I could sit back and say, wow, you know, I understand like he was wounded um, and be okay with that. But uh, I also kind of creep out. I have a 19 year old client right now and I creep out at the idea of a 45 year old man, you know, attaching himself to her yeah, and that's classic daddy issues. Right. But it's very serious. Um, so I left him drunk. That's how I had the courage. So you were with him for six years. Um, eight to 26. Yeah. So six years, 27 is when I actually uh, got sober. And that was about a few months after I left him. But I'll tell you within six months of not having that boundary, you know, of having a husband, I had done enough drinking to know that I was at my end. You know what I mean? Like once I had that, that, uh, uh, expectation lifted where I had to go home and I was in my own environment, I went wild. Yeah. And it was good. I mean, it was really good because it got it out of my system to a point and I was able to shit say, oh my gosh, yeah. no one is, my whole life, no one has ever been responsible for taking care of me. And if they did, they did a kind of poor job and I got the message, you better keep your shit under wraps. You yeah. better make it tight because no one is going to be watching out for you. And, uh, yeah, you I know, mean, that you, was what happened. You were told without being told, you were told a lot of different narratives and, and rules when you were younger. Uh, exactly. That's, yeah, that's, that's wild. So you have the, the foresight or to get to get sober. I mean, that's, it's crazy. That's huge. How it happened. Right? Yeah, um, I don't, I mean, totally God's grace, honestly, because I don't know how, you know, I had one party, 
and I didn't make it to work the next day. And because I was so afraid of not being able to take care of myself, I went in and confessed to the boss that I had and he walked me down to HR and they set me up with an employee assistance program. You know, all I thought was that I was gross the moral, you know, the demoralization of the alcoholic behavior broke me and I felt so much shame, you know, like there was something really, really wrong with me. And my introduction to a program that would say, you're not wrong, you're sick. Oh, now that was my second breath. Yeah. You know, that was the second exhale. Take a little bit of that off your shoulders. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm super blessed that it's been, you know, well, I mean, I'll be celebrating 24, so I'm in my 24th year. Wow. And I haven't had to uh, go test that theory. I mean, I know from every, every you know, DNA, every cell in my body that I am, uh, I have an allergy to alcohol. Yeah. Well, congratulations on, on that long. That's great. Thank you. Well, this seems like a really good place to take a break and talk to you about Bravis Brewing. You guys have heard me talk about them before. They are a non-alcoholic brewery out of California, and they have some delightful beers. You might have seen me review some of them recently on my YouTube channel or on the SoberCurator.com where I write beer reviews. Either way, you got to check them out. I just ordered their limited edition coconut porter. That's right, a non-alcoholic coconut porter. I'll tell you, every time I miss a beer that I can't get non-alcoholic, uh, especially in the stout world, they come out with it. Their peanut butter stout, their their seasonal uh, barrel-aged stout. Good on you, Bravas. If you guys want to check out Bravas, it is delicious. You can go to bravas.com. Use code FRIENDREQUEST. That's one word, F-R-I-E-N-D-R-E-Q-U-E-S-T. I've said that a lot. And save 10% off your order on me, guys. So go nuts. Bravas.com, code FRIENDREQUEST. Save 10%. Drink a little less alcohol. Have a, a beautiful day. I'm going to give you back to the show. Okay, bye-bye. So when along your recovery journey, does this turn into a light bulb where you're like, oh, wait a second. When did you realize that you had this this skill that you were able to share with other people? And Walk then, people through. Yeah. And on top of that, when, when did you realize that that was something that you would be able to... Um, can it use as, as, as a career? Right. Well, I, honestly, just a couple of years ago is when I finally gave myself permission to do it for a living. Yeah. Uh, the 12 steps are very, based on giving it away, which I understand. But my experience is more than just recovery from alcoholism. It's recovery from some of the things that you should, no person should live through. Yeah. And yeah. my privilege my, is to bring the message that you can have a life beyond your dreams regardless. Um, I did, uh, there were several codependent relationships and I met my son's father in AA. And when I met him, you know, we bought a house and, you know, got married, bought a house and had a baby in the right order. And I really felt like that those were my promises. You know, I was seven years sober by the time my son was born and I never experienced codependency at the level I did when I had a child. Um, well, first, first I realized how how unbelievably how what a disservice my parents had done to me you know i really yeah. finally realized the wounding because i was looking at this perfect precious baby and i realized you know how badly i had been treated it was like the first time i actually recognized it so i had to walk through that because he needed me to be present yeah. and um i'm gonna get to your question soon because oh, you're it's good. part of it um 
And then at two years, he was diagnosed with autism. And I felt like God had really screwed me over. You know, I was doing what you're supposed to do. You know, I was helping others. I am an Enneagram two. I am an advocate. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I love fours. A healthy two is supposed to present as a four. So a two is a helper. I'm an advocate advocate and in human design i don't know if you've ever done any human design stuff but Mm -hmm. they have it's amazing and i am a projector which is a counselor and a helper so regardless of how i'm earning my paycheck i'm helping people you know and it's just always been a passion and uh, i've never uh ever been able to kind of walk away from that part of me but when my son was diagnosed i really had to dig in and learn how to help him because he had uh he would be uh, rated as severe. He's nonverbal, okay. and he's been through quite a bit. You know, at one point he almost had a drowning, and so that is what my family origin was preparing me for, which I did not know. And I had to circle the wagons and figure out how to take care of him and how to take care of me. And it was almost like all the distractions of life left, and my taste for the corporate world left with it. Because I finally realized, like, no, it's this is what's important, you know. And I would think as I'm trying to sell a hotel room or do an executive suite or be a director of development and training, I would think none of this matters. I just have to get home to my baby. But I was used to working two jobs. So that's what I did. I worked two jobs. I did my program. I started a nonprofit. I worked his recovery program, which is a lot of therapy. And I didn't sleep because he didn't sleep. And so that really brought me to... I think the true surrender of my life, um, you know, it, it was, it took autism for me to realize that I was, I was going to have to figure out how to help people, yeah. uh, without killing myself, you know? Yeah. So I kind of took a backseat for the helping, you know, at first I was all into it. I advocated for people at IEPs, you know, for families that were suffering and Billy is the one, my son is the one who brought me out of living for others. Then I had to figure out how not to live for him. <laughs> and I, it, to be honest, that happened about six years ago. Yeah. And that was really surprising to me, you know, where uh, I finally had the courage to ask his father to leave because it just wasn't good for any of us. And I was on my own and uh, God saw fit to bring somebody to me who really just thought I was beautiful and smart and worth being around regardless. You know, I didn't have a job. I was tired. You know, I was 46, you know, 46 years old with a special needs son, not exactly the most attractive package to a partner, (laughs) but we figured it out. And in that, because he gave me that kind of safe place and I gave it to myself, I started to realize that I've been trying to run away from not speaking My truth, like I was meant to say something, obviously. I made it through uh, in utero abuse. You know what I mean? Like I was strong. I was meant here to teach. And And, go ahead. I'm I'm just curious, and I I don't want to get too far ahead before I jump backwards. But um, when you were like having him, I mean, Mm -hmm. what was going through your head? Were you excited to be a parent and kind of prove your parents wrong or were you fearful of like oh god what if i make the same mistakes like what what was going through your head then and then after you overcome that what's going through your head when you have to relearn essentially all over again two years later yeah um i was just overwhelmed with the love 
That's a good. You know, answer. I was overwhelmed. <laughs> I had no idea what to expect. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what to expect. I had a very difficult pregnancy. We were, you know, my son's father and I were in a rollover car accident about a month before I became pregnant. And it was very hard. It was a very hard pregnancy. And then it was a, an incredibly traumatic birth for my son, unfortunately, and for me. But I never was afraid that I would do it like my parents had. Because the program and all of the seeking I've had to undo the damage, yeah. like I knew for damn sure that he was going to have a life in which he knew he was valued. You know, um, he didn't have, he's nonverbal and it doesn't, I, I don't think it's an accident that I have a nonverbal child because I didn't have a voice, you know, and now I can be his voice as much as he'll let me. You know, so, it's like I get to prove he has to be enough. And if he's enough, then I'm enough. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to look at that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was really angry. I don't know how to explain it. It's like I could have taken any kind of punishment on myself. Yeah. You know, but to do it to my baby really felt kind of jacked up. Yeah. But and he needed to know that he wasn't the problem. Because, see, I was raised thinking I was the problem. And if I let autism take me out of my beautiful life, I would think that I was afraid he would always think that he was the problem. Yeah. So I ran toward recovery and acceptance as hard as I could. And it sounds like you did a good job with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of truth. Um, there's a lot of really good advice about when you start speaking and helping people that you do it from a place of a scar, not a wound. Yeah. And so I took the time to get there. You know, I wasn't quick to try to find out the best part of this. You know, so many people are like, they'll say things like it happens for a reason and you want to punch them in the face for yep. saying that because yep. it's stupid. <laughs> it's like a stupid thing to say to somebody. Or my favorite is, well, all children have special needs and, what? You Who know, says that? Yeah, many people say things like that. What an or, ignorant thing to say. <laughs> I know. And so I really know it's up to me to share the part of it that's painful and also the part of it that's beautiful. And uh, I'm just now starting to see what he has taught me in the best possible light. Yeah. And that's that's kind of why I'm willing to trust that I'm supposed to be doing doing things without working two jobs a day. You know what I mean? Like I'm supposed to be having a life. Yeah. So. so what, uh, do you remember, was there a certain person or moment and obviously like personal details aside of that, that individual, but where you were, where you helped a, a person or a group of people and you were like, this is it. This is, this yeah. is what I, what was that moment like? Well, it's, um, gosh. Okay. So I'll tell the story of my best friend because I was 14 15 oh, when this happened, oh. uh, uh, or maybe 16. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I was in a church youth group. Part of my history is, uh, is a Southern Baptist religion and fanaticism, you know? So I have all kinds of stories about that. And, uh, we had a young man who was in our youth group because that was the one place I could socialize without getting in trouble. And he was fabulous. Like he was crazy. He was just wild. <laughs> and, uh, I loved him. You know, he kind of, I'm pretty sure he had a little crush on me. You know, he would come and talk to me, but he just loved him. And, uh, 
he rode bulls for fun. You know, he rode wild bulls. (laughs) <laughs> and he was tramp- he was trampled to death. Oh my God! Why yeah. did you let and me laugh? Was- <laughs> <laughs> because he would have laughed, because he was that kind of guy. And uh, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't have wanted a life that played safe. He loved living out loud, and uh, it hit our youth group really, really hard. You know, it was the first death. You know, and he was sixteen. Yeah, you're not supposed to die when you're sixteen. Yeah, and his best friend was the brother of my now best friend. But at that time, she didn't care very much for me. <laughs> you know, girls being jealous of girls. I've heard. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little, little drama because I was the new girl in the youth group and getting attention. And, you know, she probably hadn't said nice things about me, but I knew that she was really hurting because her brother was best friends with this young man. And mm. so I could. I just knew that her feelings had to be incredibly complicated because she was watching her older brother cry so hard. And, of course, she had her own grief. And I reached out to her. Uh, I called her and talked to her about it and said, I just want to check on you and told her about how my father had died. You know, and he at that time, I thought he was still my father. Yeah. And she has been my friend for 40 years since then, 35 years. And that's probably the first time I kind of knew that this was in me, you know, and I ended up sitting with the youth group and sharing my story because the youth pastor asked me to share about loss and what it feels like and how you can make it through. And so at 15, I'm this kind of public speaker helper type person. And that's probably the first time I remember doing it where I was able to share about pain and promote healing, which is something that some people have and some people don't it's a preview of things to come um, right <laughs> yeah and that's that's remarkable so what does the just like uh kind of the, from the business sense uh, what does a transition look like from your uh, your hospitality jobs your development mm-hmm. jobs into doing this over the last two years what does that transition look like what are your support systems during that time um, sure. financially and, and just, you know, to pick you up at the end of the day. Cause it sounds like right. you're, you're finally learning that self-care is part of the whole process. So huge. So, so, huge. so yeah, what does all that um, look like? Well, uh, I, I had a really good, I do have a really good, um, support system, you know, and that's all of my really close people are from a 12 step program, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I've been grateful that I've, searched out recovery and that has given me the skills in order to, um, develop relationships. Again, I already touched on that. My, my, the relationship with my husband was absolutely vital in saying you could do anything and, you know, you do not need to, to produce, you don't have to work two jobs. You know, he's the first person. It's like, I'd really like to see you take a nap and having that permission was like, wow. Okay. Um, I've been lucky enough that I had some some business ventures that allowed me to pursue this. So I didn't have to make a living in the beginning, Yeah, you know, and I could go. And it's again, just like every other thing in my life. If there's resistance, I wait, not patiently sometimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wait. And, uh, that's just after so many years of running my head into a concrete wall, trying to make it move faster yeah. than it is. And it, it ties directly into my belief system that what I have to say is important. 
people have been encouraging me to be a public speaker. I mean, I've, I've been a public speaker, but on advocacy for autism and on recovery. I've never done it for my own business. Yeah. And it's as scary as it can be to do that. But I feel like it's not probably the final frontier. I'm afraid to even say that because I'm <laughs> sure there'll be a new lesson after I'm done. But it's definitely the big one. I well, read yeah. this book. I was going to say the level you have to have to really believe in yourself right. to do that uh, is... You know, I, I'm someone obviously in recovery too, you know, and that self-doubt is is there constantly. So like to get to that place is is remarkable. And I'm sure you have to question it all the time. All the time. I do it every like daily. I have yeah. a I have an accountability partner who's amazing. Um, she started about the same time I did. And so we're each other's cheerleaders. I hired a coach. You know, if you're a coach, you better be willing to hire a coach. <laughs> And that person walked me through uh, just learning, you know, developing a speech that was around the principles that I've learned that I teach people in order to enjoy their life. Yeah. My program is Learn to Love Your Life. And when I sat back and had to think, you know, through her process, what is it that I really want to do with my life? Well, I'm going to be doing this anyway. And I'm sure you've heard, do something you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Yeah. You know, not always true because you have to market and you have to do yeah. stuff I don't like in order to be in this business. But I had been told for so many years that this is what I needed to be doing. It was kind of like they were just waiting. And when I said, I think I might want to do this, my support system was like, finally. I read a book, though, and it's very interesting because I'm a scholar. I read, 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 read and have been working on personal development but were prior to even getting sober, you know. Oh, nice. Uh, and uh, I read a book called The Big Leap. Have you heard of it? Uh-uh. Like Gay Hendricks. It's like this big. It's like literally oh. 150 pages. I'm and he it talks now. about <laughs> Yeah, it's so amazing. It really is very good. And he was talking about upper, upper limiting belief. What is it in your life that is keeping you from being happy? And the way he proposes his questions uh, about your choices and whether you'll be happy or not was touched me. And what it did was it taught me or made me look at the story I had about my son and the extreme fear I had about him. You know how I had it. I had this fear like on a shelf and anytime I was feeling like things were okay, I would go pick up that fear and flip through it to kind of keep myself grounded, you know? Yeah. And the way he explained it is what made me realize that I was doing that in a lot of areas. Yes, I had come so far, but there was a lot more that I still needed to conquer it. And so my limiting belief was that I'm not supposed to be here. So therefore, I don't have a voice. And so what's the opposite action of that? It's to start having a voice and just start speaking. So originally, I thought that I would be a speaker, you know, because that kind of seemed like the next thing, but I didn't know anything necessarily about the industry. And I didn't I had heard about coaching, you know, in my 20s and kind of thought it was bullshit, you know? Yeah, well, there, was, the yeah there was a lot of phases in uh, the uh -huh. 80s and 90s, especially that, 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 that word carried a certain connotation. It so. did. And, and in some cases, it's earned. So I was really hesitant to call myself that, you yeah. know, I was very hesitant, but I knew I had a story and I wanted to share my story to the benefit others. And, uh, so I've just been going at a, a you know slow pace, no expectations, and so far, you know people like to hear what I have to say, mm -hmm. and uh, it's taken. I mean, talk about 
absolutely doing contrary action to the belief that I was born with, that you're not supposed to be here, to speaking on stages, you know, on national conventions. It's literally me shaking in my bones and doing it anyway. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, with, when I'm with somebody, no, that's as natural as it can be. That, that feels good. That's where I shine. That's where I'm happy. Watching somebody turn on, watching somebody who's been through a painful situation like myself, yeah. watching them figure out that they are valuable just as they are, there's, there's nothing that feels as good as that. You know, and it was what I was searching for all those years by drinking and yeah. codependent recovery, you know, codependency eating. Well, that's, yeah. Uh, what's, what, 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 what kind of services? I know you do one-on-one -on -one coaching, you do speaking mm -hmm. events. Uh, I mean, what, what kind of stuff are, do you offer from the brand that is Christina Dennis? I know. I'm sorry. It feels so, it feels crazy, right? Yeah. To say that, but I'm learning Own that that's it. part of it. You know? <laughs> I bet you go through it a little bit too in your own marketing. Yeah. And oh, what yeah. I always want to make sure I do is not get to, not start thinking the marketing is part of, is the business. Like I'm a coach. I'm not a marketer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, having uh, a right-sized ego about it, knowing that God will uh, provide what I'm supposed to have. He always has. Yeah. Uh, I have, because of COVID, have now gone online. And that was the big push. And I know I'm not the only one who had to go online, right? I only I did these in person up till March last right? year. Right? So, yeah. It was like, it was like you know, I'm 51 years old. And I, I never would have believed that I could help somebody through Zoom. Yeah. You know, I never would have believed that. I would have thought that you always had to be knee to knee. But when COVID happened, it was like, okay, I guess I'm going to spend some time writing some courses. So I have a little uh, program called Learn to Love Your Life, which is just a system. It's a simple system. We don't go into huge amounts of inventory work because I feel like until you clean up your daily action and have some tools, yeah. it's going to be really hard to make some of the big changes. And so many people know what they're supposed to do already. They just haven't figured out how to approach it in a simple way. And so it's like a, I don't know, 20-day program, and, but you get coaching calls, which is what I love about it. So it gives them information they could study on their own, and then I get to talk to them, and we come up with a plan for them to go after. And if they feel really comfortable with what they've gotten out of the uh, relationship, perfect. That's enough. And then I have uh, my my one-on-one -on -one sessions, which usually are about three months because I think people need to – take time in between yeah. and we go through uh, inventories like you would in the program, but we go through quite a few uh, different ones, depending on what the person is working with yeah. and what they need. I think it's never going to be one size fit all, you know? And so my, my clients have ranged from a 20 year old girl, you know, that's brilliant and talk about full facing yourself. You know, yeah. I'm looking at myself, you know, <laughs> 30 years ago and uh, to uh, a man. And I never would have thought that I would work with men. But, you know, we all have the people that come to me are the people that want to heal that deep wounding, you yeah. know, and that's okay if you don't. That's the other thing that I've learned in recovery. It's okay if you don't want to. You are supposed to live your life the way you want to. And if that, if it's enough for you to, to enjoy your day the way you're enjoying it, go for it. Yeah. But if you're like me, who needs to go and heal those deep wounds, then I'm, I would like to do that with you. So who, um, and you kind of answered this a little already, but who is your, who's your ideal client? Uh, somebody who wants to, you know, um, move beyond just therapy. You know, yeah. I don't work directly. Like if you're in the middle of a crisis, 
then that's not good for me, yeah. you know, and that's not good for you. And I want you to have a team. If you're in the middle of a crisis, I want you to have a team that can really support you. Yeah. But it's the person that is so frustrated that what they're doing isn't working, you know, and needs to have needs to have somebody be able to reflect back to them their actual uh, worth. That's that's the person. And I up until last year, I would have said it was always 30 to 40 year olds or 30 to 50 year old women. And now I've just been very, you know, it's just been interesting to me that people have shown up. They yeah. want a better life. They want to know how to have a good life. They realize that the trappings of consumerism have not helped them. They're tired and they need to to be inspired. And that's the kind of people that I really enjoy working with. Awesome. You know? Yeah. I had one more question as in regards to kind of the business mindset. Um, sure. What advice would you give to somebody that they're, you know, they're kind of in your shoes in the way that they think they have a message to share mm -hmm. They're Maybe they're getting some traction on that with, with friends or other relationships they built and they want to kind of get to that next level where they're doing that on a bigger platform. Uh, sure. Whatever obstacles in their way, whether it be finance, fear, all the above, like what, what advice would you give to those people? Oh gosh, the same boring advice we get, right? <laughs> it's not, it's a marathon, not a sprint, yeah. uh, which is worthy of eye rolling. But um, probably the best is I would, I would encourage them to look at who's doing, look at the people that are doing what they want, you know, how they want to be doing it. You know, I have the coach I just hired. Her name is uh, Susan Hyatt and she is a very successful coach who's very strong in her individualism and her business plan is extreme self-care now the first coach i hired it wasn't the same but i'm happy that we got to a certain level the second coach uh she has taught me so much so there are people out there that can help you um and take your time finding the one that you relate to and hire them invest in yourself so that you're not trying to become an expert at all things, you know, and then like I used to tell parents when they first got a diagnosis, all right, which therapy they would be sitting in front of me at a trade show with what they felt was their children's lives in their hands, asking me, what should I do? And I would say the same thing always to them, whatever you can afford and do every day. And so for somebody trying to figure out their business plan, I say the same thing to them. Whatever you can do every day to move yourself forward is what you do. Yeah. 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 Because there are a thousand different ways to do this kind of job. Yeah. Make sure you check in with your body and make sure that you're feeling good about what you're doing. Yeah. Don't burn yourself nope. out. <laughs> yeah. And we all have a, we all have that inner Google. That's what Susan calls it. We all know kind of like, okay, I'm going down the right road. Yeah. You know, and what works for you may not work for somebody else. So no comparison. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's, I mean, where can, I guess, last, most importantly, where can people find you? <laughs> oh, I, I have a very, um, very straightforward website, Christina Dennis with a K. Yeah. I've been <laughs> that's there. What I yeah. It's a very straight, kind of simple website. Uh, I also host rooms on Clubhouse, which I'm really enjoying. Yes. Um, yeah, so please just reach out. There's a lot of free stuff on my website that I always encourage people to utilize and start because then they'll know if if I work for them, if our styles match. Yeah. Absolutely. And I always offer a, a free uh, call in the beginning to just make sure I don't want anybody uh, working with me that isn't comfortable with me. And yeah. it's important that we're both 
on the same page. Yeah, you know? and it, it feels it definitely feels more honest too, where it, it's like not everybody's going to be a perfect fit, right? And so you get to of course decide that on both sides first. So that's that's nice. And I think more now than ever, this is going to be a really important industry because there's so much grief in our world right now that we haven't even like we're still holding our breath walking out of this pandemic, and we're lucky that we're in the United States and actually walking out of it. I hope, yeah. but we do. We have not hit the wave of grief that I think is going to happen, and so we all have to start investing in our own mental health and our own you know self care yeah. because I think it's going to be really hard for a couple of years. I, I keep laughing and saying, I feel like the entire world just went through an inventory. <laughs> if you're not part of 12 steps, you will get it. But fourth step, I feel like everybody just got handed to them, you know, yeah. their worst nightmares. Yeah. It's funny. There's a, a bunch of theories that, um, the roaring twenties, 1920s, they happened because they were right after the Spanish flu. And so when that was over, everyone went nuts. And so everyone's like, oh, we're about to have another roaring twenties. Right. So, so yeah, you can expect more people in recovery. By the it's true, by the 30s, and all yeah. the businesses have changed. You know, the access to it. It's it's a very new world. So I think that people that want to help people need to get ready and Start have your helping. have your place. You know, your intentions in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, check out christinadennis.com. Uh, and your Instagram is at Christina Dennis underscore, correct? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. There was already a Christina Dennis, so I had to improvise. We'll find her, Christina. We'll find her and we'll take her down. Please. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <Get her. laughs> well, that's all right. that's all I got. I, Thank you. Thanks, Christina. Oh, and I love yeah. that you say you're married to a hottie. <laughs> it's true. No, that's it's a true good story. shit. That's good shit. <laughs> she Keep might not up. say it about herself, but I'll say it all day long. There you go. Good stuff. <laughs> all right, friend. Thanks so much. 